think I'm scheduled to come back again next week, right? So Romans next week. We'll get back to Romans. But uh, because of the nature of a situation, uh, Mark and the uh, elders have asked me to speak on this subject. Uh, I've taught on it, and it is something that we need to understand biblically, pointed uh, with a concept of church discipline at all. It's often been called the misunderstood commandment. I think it's totally the forgotten commandment in most ways. Now, uh, when I talk about discipline in the church, that is the family of God, right? And you don't need to take notes. Uh, we have printouts that we're going to give we you after this is over. You want to record? Uh, so you can just listen very carefully. Uh, because of the importance of the subject, I wanted you to, number one, listen very carefully to what I'm saying, and number two, to have something to take home with you to study it out more in church. That's simply the family of God. And it often helps me to look at the physical family to help me understand discipline there in order to understand it in the spiritual family. So uh, the word discipline, I think we misunderstand itself. Uh, we usually think of it simply in the corrective uh, vein, but the word actually simply means training. And so when you think about discipline, training has both an instructive side and a corrective side. But that put together is what the Bible calls training. Both are very important. And the balance, for those of us that are parents, the balance between the two is also very important in our individual families as well as in the family of God. In the family, some parents tend to be too corrective and others tend to be too permissive. Sometimes it's mom one way, dad the other way on either side of that coin and all the uh, counseling that I've dealt with, but here's what happens if you're too corrective. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. And if you're too corrective, that's what happens. On the other hand, Proverbs 13 says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And I've seen parents that thought any form of discipline of a corrective nature was wrong and uh, guaranteed they're going to raise some children they are going to have a real hard time functioning in the world. It does take both sides. When we talk about the corrective side of church discipline, which is our subject, it's often called withdrawal of fellowship, and we'll explain that uh, with a passage or two. And in certain cases, it's called marking, which is actually pointing out or identifying someone damaged in the church. Uh, of course, our immediate response in the 21st century America is, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not loving. Doesn't Jesus forbid us to judge one another? And the answer to that is, he does forbid one type of judging, and he absolutely commands another type. Here's the passage we think of about forbidding it, but if you read the whole context, you'll find out there's a little more even to this passage. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So even this passage doesn't say uh, absolutely no judging ever of any type. It just says you can't do it in a judgmental, critical, condemnatory way. You mm -hmm. need to do it to help someone uh, out. Then he says in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance. Things aren't always as they seem, but judge with righteous judgment. Mm -hmm. So we've got to make sure that we don't come to real quick uh, uh, conclusions based simply on the appearance of a matter. And then 1 Corinthians 5, in which he is talking about immorality in the church. He says, but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he concludes, expel the wicked man from wow. among you. And this is someone, we'll look at this passage more uh, at depth in a moment. Now, let's just look at the passages that deal with what we call church discipline. I'll just take them in order chronologically as they appear in the New Testament. He says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And so that is a withdrawal of fellowship if repentance is not forthcoming. Uh, but the design is work it out. This is a sin between brothers. They need to get together and work the thing out. This is not a pattern for all church discipline. A lot of people assume that. But we'll explain why that couldn't be the case a little later. This begins as the private sin between two Christians and should be solved by them privately. Others may be brought in to help resolve the issues, and it can, if repentance doesn't occur, lead to disfellowship. And then in Romans 16, this is one that we would call marking or identifying uh, someone who is causing divisions based on false teaching. He says, I urge you, brothers, and I would have gotten to this anyway, maybe, in Romans, but he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ with their own appetites, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. False teachers are dangerous. They sound good. 
I have read the writings and heard the lessons of many people off on their teaching, and yet because they were very good at explaining it, it sounded almost true, and that's why knowing the Bible well is such a vital thing. He said, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. In other words, don't let yourself be pulled in by a false teacher because it is going to hurt you. Stay away from it. Be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And so this uh, passage deals with a public marking or identifying of a divisive false teacher, and such a person may be a Christian or not in the church or not in the church. Uh, it could be someone totally out of the church but praying on the church, uh, not this kind of prayer, P-R-E-Y, <laughs> praying on the church and hurting people's faith. And so this is a very broad one about identifying those that are teaching false things. Here's the passage we read the end of earlier to give you the context. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. We assume that's his stepmother or else it would have said his mother. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if, he, if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. That's one purpose of this fellowship, is to cause someone to reconsider where they are and come to repentance. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Mm. Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been... Uh, sanctified. Therefore, let us keep the festivals, not with the old yeast, the sinful part of the world, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And then the passage that we read already, I've written to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now... I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from you. This passage describes the sexual sin of a disciple and the distorted view of grace held by the church. Sometimes we talk about cheap grace. Uh, this is beyond that. It is so distorted, it's free grace. Do anything you want. But that is from Satan and never, ever from God. But the church was saying, oh, we 
are full of grace and we love everybody and we're not judging anybody. And Paul said, you're in sin and you better repent to help this brother repent of what he is doing. Know that the hope in the disfellowship will bring about repentance. And many people think that 2 Corinthians 7 describes that person that in fact was moved through the disfellowship to repent and now Paul urges them to let him back in. If he's repented, let him back in. Mm -hmm. They were so shook up by Paul's stern admonition, they probably became a little too corrected, and once the guy repented, they had to be reminded, let him back in. Even if repentance didn't occur, keeping the church pure does occur, that's what he said, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? When we don't deal with sin, the way the Bible describes it, it will end up polluting the church. Yep. More and more people will give into that, and uh, even a majority sometimes can get so distorted that almost anything goes, and that's true of many, many churches in the DFW area. Wow. No one is ever going to ask you when you walk in or walk out or do whatever you do if you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody else's wife or anything else. You will not be asked because the whole goal is let's get everybody here, make everybody happy, not necessarily make everybody righteous. Amen. And that is God's plan, of course. Yep. In 2 Thessalonians, he talks about a, an unusual situation. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Mm -hmm. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of it. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And so here's somebody sponging off of everyone, not even trying to find a job. If you don't have a job, you do have a job. An eight-hour day looking for a job. Uh, you're never without a job. Titus 3, then, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Even after Christ came, even after they're under a new covenant, there were those in the church with the Jewish background that were always wanting to deal with law stuff. And once we've come to Christ, we're no longer under the old covenant. We have a new covenant in Christ. But anyway, that was their problem. He says, warn a divisive person once, 
and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Note that the process is different than Matthew 18. It's different than Romans 16, as I mentioned. For someone that is divisive, to throw this open to the church with new Christians, people who don't know the Bible well, etc., that would be not a wise thing to do. Paul gave this command to an evangelist and said, you do it. When you read uh, the first chapter of Titus, uh, Paul told Titus to get some elders appointed. And when you read why they were to be appointed, a big part of it had to do with this very issue, to help the evangelist with the issue of church discipline. But it was elders and evangelists doing it because of the divisive nature of what was going on. Now, which sins necessitate withdrawal? Well, in the passages we've read, a number of specific sins were mentioned, right? And so we've read a number of those. Some sins are not specifically identified with withdrawal, yet they are included by necessity because of their impact on a person's relationship with God. You see, withdrawal of fellowship is actually a recognition that a person has already lost fellowship with God due to unrepentant sin. Therefore, the church cannot be in fellowship with someone who is out of fellowship with God. This is God's family. So that's an important distinction. Many sins would qualify for withdrawal because most of the sin lists end with admonitions like this. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the end of Galatians 5, 21. 1 Corinthians 6 says the same thing. So if a person is in an unrepentant sin that breaks their fellowship with God, the church must recognize that in order to help them get back on track and get right with God. What's the procedure for withdrawal? First, pray for the person. 1 John 5 talks about this. There's always a lot of prayer begging God uh, that we don't get to this point. Uh, I served as an elder in two places for many, many years. Been in the preaching business for 45. I've been through a lot of situations in all of those years. None of them are pleasant. I never look forward to any night to teach on this subject. It's necessary, I'm willing to do it, I am not bashful about doing it or reticent to do it, but uh, I wish we didn't have to, but we do. But we need to pray a lot about it. Second, we need to go to them and try to turn them back. Matthew 18, James 5, you turn a sinner from their ways, you save uh, their soul and save them from a multitude of sins. Third, we need to take others, and I said leaders, with us as the needs dictate. And when I say leaders, I'm not talking about merely staff people. I'm talking about mature people who know the Bible well and know how to work with people uh, to help us work with them. Fourth, if the person is not moved to repentance at this point, we have to give them a warning. 
Fifth, after they've been warned and have refused to heed the warning, we have to inform the church to stay away from those who are in sin, unrepentant sin. After they're with formally withdrawn from, no social fellowship is allowed. Paul made it very clear, with such a person, do not even eat. Starbucks times are over. Fellowship is over. That's what God is saying, and if we're going to obey him, we have to do it. What are the purposes? Number one, to obey God's teaching. Uh, that's where I always start. If God said it, I'm going to obey it. Easy, hard, popular, unpopular. Doesn't matter to me. If God said it, it's done. The old bumper sticker said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's one line too long. God said it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Second, to keep the church pure in two ways. One, withdrawal keeps the church pure by protecting it from guilt as an accomplice. You'll have the outline on this. You read 2 John verses 9 to 11, and if we allow it, we are in God's sight condoning it and considered by him as an accomplice to the sin. So you want to read that passage, right? Two, it protects the church from sinful influence, the leaven concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Third, it serves as a warning to the church. 1 Timothy 5 mentions that. When somebody is dealt with publicly, it is a warning to the church. And we take things more seriously, and it's also a warning to the world. The world was affected pretty severely by God's discipline in Acts chapter 5. That ended up with two dead Christians, by the way. Uh, God doesn't make a habit of that, thankfully. Uh, but he did with Ananias and Sapphira, and the world definitely took note of that one. And then fourth, to restore the fallen Christian if at all possible. It's not always possible. When this serious act of discipline fails to move the person to repentance... The Bible has not failed. The church has not failed. God has not failed. Only the person has failed by failing to respond to the love of God expressed through the church. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, Be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He is after getting people to repent and Hopefully they do, but they don't always. Withdrawal of fellowship, here's how I look at it. This is, was the last sentence in a chapter in a book that you'll have a copy of soon. Withdrawal of fellowship is a last resort, much like an emergency operation. The odds may not be good for survival, but sometimes it saves a life and therefore must be tried. However, even when repentance and restoration do not occur, all of the other purposes of such discipline are still accomplished and the victory is still the Lord's. Okay, that's a very quick rendition of this, but you can study it out more at your leisure later. And now one of our elders, I think. So we're going to...